Well, ladies and gentlemen, a great big warm welcome to something that I'm sure is not an exaggeration to say is one of the absolute highlights of the Edinburgh International Book Festival, because to have Professor Richard Dawkins here in the flesh to discuss this incredible publishing phenomenon that is the God Delusion is a great honour uh, for all of us in this tent. This is amazing. Ever since its publication, this book has not left the top bestsellers list in, in, in all the countries it's been published in. It sold over one and a half million copies and a great deal of them in America, where you would imagine somebody with Richard's views would more properly be pulled behind a pickup truck through Utah. <laughs> But not so. Um, and it's so exciting because in addition to him obviously being one of the world's top intellectuals and the most eminent scientists, he is now officially a top topical celebrity in the genuine meaning of the world. He doesn't play football and he doesn't have breast implants. <laughs> He is what a celebrity should be. Um, welcome, a huge warm welcome, Richard. Thank you so much for coming today. Um, I suppose the first thing I want to ask you, which is the most obvious, is given that you've dealt um, a great deal with religious belief and the, the, the logical dissection of that in your scientific works, but almost as a side note, what was it that spurred you on to do this as a publication and deal only with that subject? I suppose the question is why I didn't do it years ago. I, I mean, I've been pretty hostile to religion ever since I was about 16. Um, and uh, I don't know, I, I tried it out on my literary agent, the, uh, the magnificent John Brockman in New York, who's sort of single-handedly raised science publishing um, profile. Um, I believe he might carry a gun, I'm not sure. I, mean, I know <laughs> publishers are tape, wears a sort of guys and dolls hat. Um, publishers are terrified of him. Um, he, when I raised the question of possibly writing The God Delusion about six years ago, he told me, don't be so ridiculous, of course you can't write that book. Um, you'll never sell it in America. Um, and so I didn't. Uh, and maybe he was right then, but after six years of Bush, <coughs> and, and I suppose after 9-11, um, he changed his mind and sort of begged me to, to, uh, to write it, which I did. It has been a huge hit in America. And I wonder what you think the demographic of your readership is there. Is it people who are just so excited that they have, to, they've, they've have doubts themselves? Or is it people who are your opponents who wish to pull you low? Who, who are they? I haven't done a proper demographic survey. I don't know. Um, obviously, my ambition was to change people's minds. And it would be nice to think that some minds have been changed. I kind of got the impression that, I mean, I've been accused a lot of preaching to the choir. And I kind of got the impression that possibly is somewhat true. But on the other hand, what I've also learned is that the choir is very big, much bigger than anyone realized, and uh, was semi-hidden, was closeted. And so I think what it looks as though what's what this phenomenon, which is not just my book, but, but Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, um, Dan Dennett, and, and Victor Stenger, and me, and perhaps others, um, I think what we're tapping into is a kind of frustration in America among people who are, I mean, why should they be any different from this country where, where just about all intellectuals are not, are not, not religious? Um, obviously, there's no reason why American intellectuals shouldn't be the same. Um, and yet, something about um, American society made them reluctant to come out. And, and I think maybe that's what people like 
uh, Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and I are, 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 are tapping into. We're encouraging people to come off the fence or come out of the, out of the closet. Because you do highlight um, rather beautifully and rather terrifyingly the crisis. In fact, one of the people you quote calls it an emergency in America, the amount of religiosity uh, that overtakes. It's impossible, for instance, to be elected into um, any senior government position if you are an atheist. Um, that is an emergency in many ways because of the way that the world is polarising into the great Abrahamic supremacist expansionist religions. Um, and I wonder if you feel that yourself and, and the triumvirate, triumvirate of these books is actually going to make a difference or if, it's going to, if it's going to polarise it further. Well, I think things are looking somewhat encouraging. Um, first, if you think about the, um, the, the size of the American Congress, I think it's 535 members. Um, if not a single one, actually one now has, has come, come out, but if, if, if only one out of 535 is genuinely anything other than a Bible-believing, church-going Christian or Jew, then a hell of a lot of those have got to be lying. Mm. There's no question about that. I mean, it, st statistically, it just cannot be the case that 535 people um, of sufficient education uh, and ability to get themselves elected are all religious believers. It can't be true. So there, there's a large number of people in the, there who are already sympathetic to what we think, um, but who are afraid to say so. Well, why are they afraid to say so? Because they've been persuaded that the electorate want them to be religious. And that must be because the very substantial non-religious part of the electorate has been too quiet, hasn't lobbied hard enough. Uh, and so I think it could be that if the books that you're talking about manage to persuade a lot of non-believers to come out of the closet and not only stand up and speak out, but write to their congressmen and say, okay, by all means listen to the this lobby and the that lobby and the other lobby, but we are here too. Uh, then I think that could really make, make a big difference. Now, when we talk about non-believers, this is really important uh, to me to get this out of the way because it enrages me, is um, the vocabulary that's used by your opponents, particularly when they call you a fundamentalist atheist. I mean, this is quite ridiculous. Yeah. And, you, and you address that beautifully in the book, and I wonder if you just mind sharing with us your response to that because it's terrific. Well, of course, if you, if you want to... Um, object to what somebody like me is saying, the first thing you do is you say, well, he's just as bad as they are, yep. but, but um, on, on the other side. Um, and there's a kind of superficial plausibility in it, because um, I am very passionate. And so the, the passion that I have for what I believe, or the, the method of discovering uh, things, is a passion to match the passion of a fundamentalist. But the huge difference is that the fundamentalist believes what he believes because it's written in a holy book or has been passed down through generations of bearded old fools. <laughs> Whereas you and I are equally passionate, but what we believe, we believe because we've looked at the evidence or we know that other people have looked at the evidence and we know where we could go and look it up if we had the time. So we, we do have an equal passion. But it is not fundamentalist passion. No, because of course our <coughs> minds can be changed instantly if some, you know, if someone, if there were proof tomorrow there was God, I, of course I would change my mind. I imagine you're the same. Most certainly. Yes, but yeah. they will not, and that's yeah. the essential difference. Yeah. They will not change yeah. their mind regardless of the fact that you present such fantastic evidence. Um, 
the, also, the vocabulary is very clever. Also, Islamophobia is a very clever use of vocabulary because, of course, a phobia is an irrational fear of something. Yes. Uh, when, in fact, lots of people's fear of a supremacist, slight fascistic um, religion is not irrational at all. It's perfectly rational. Yes. So I wonder how you, how you feel about this kind of war of words, particularly the media um, is leading in. And the BBC are also very guilty of this. They're very careful about their vocabulary um, so yeah. they don't offend anybody. Yes. Um, when the um, saga, actually the, um, not sure, I think saga is too dignified a word for it, the, the um, nonsense of the Danish cartoon aff affair came out, and I think no British newspapers published the, yep. the cartoons, and I think only one American newspaper did, uh, even though, uh, as Christopher Hitchens points out, um, these papers are all picture-driven under any other circumstances. Of course they would have published those, those pictures. Now, they've been accused of cowardice. Christopher Hitchens accused the editors of cowardice. I don't accuse them of cowardice. It's just plain prudence. I mean, if you're threatened, if your life is threatened, then why should you uh, endanger your life? Because people are so insecure about their religion that the only way they can influence people is by threatening their lives then who can blame those editors for, um, for um, not printing the, the, the cartoons? But if anybody who threatens somebody's life thinks that they're thereby buying their respect, then they're very much mistaken. Uh, you don't buy respect by threats. Um, you, you can get respect by talking sense, by using persuasive arguments, by being dignified, by, um, by saying things that people that, that people can see deser deserve respect. But if you, if you get people to, um, to uh, do your, your wish by threatening them, or if you say apostasy, that any, anybody who gives up their, their religion should suffer the death penalty, which is what they do say, that cannot deserve respect from anyone. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are saying that this book really does, the best thing about it is it starts a debate. Um, I actually think it closes it because there's nothing, there's nothing <laughs> anymore that anybody can argue that isn't logically in a scholarly manner, and I think a very polite manner, just absolutely finishes because you can't win. And I just think, what an astounding <laughs> achievement. It's slightly depressing as well. <laughs> well. I, I imagine at some point you're going to throw this open to the audience. You may. I you am. May find, <laughs> and you may find see. a certain. Um, Come and have a go if you it, think it, you're hard it, enough. It, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'd like to get back to this point where people accuse you of being strident and rude. It's, it, I, it is quite the reverse. In fact, um, I would have been much ruder. There's a great deal of material in here where I think actually does not merit discussion, uh, like creationism. But you, you, but you tackle it beautifully in detail, you know, point by point until the argument is won. Um, how did you remain so patient and well-tempered when dealing with such an idiotic, preposterous theory? Well, Trouble is, Muriel, not all my readers are, are you. <laughs> um, and uh, so there are, there are people who have been um, bamboozled into thinking that there is something wrong with evolution, that there's something right about uh, naive, even young Earth creationism. And uh, a, an awful lot of uh, biology teachers, for example, I'm very sorry to say this, but it's true, an awful lot of biology teachers really think that there's a genuine debate going on among s scientists about whether evolution is true. 
And so w one is faced with two possible ways of, of handling this. One is to say this is so ridiculous it's not even worth discussing. Mm. And there are times when I have to confess that I've done that, which is what you want me to do. But, um, <laughs> no, I don't. But there, but, but there, are, there are other times when, when I feel that you have to go out and actually uh, persuade. And I'm constantly being pressured by, from the other direction by people who say, stop being so aggressive. You've got to talk. You've got to reach out to these people. It's no good just saying, you're all thick. Um, uh, you've got to... Um, you've got to Persuade, and persuading means, um, my colleague Lawrence Krauss says, it's equivalent to seducing. You've got to go out and seduce. Um, so you've got to say, yes, yes, I understand what you're saying, and, uh, and, and, there's a, and, and I can easily see where you're coming from, but have you considered looking at it this way? And now that, that's how Lawrence Krauss does it, and many, many people among my colleagues think that that's the, the right approach. So I'm kind of torn between them and, and, and you and... and well, I think, I think you found the perfect <coughs> middle ground because it's just through logic and evidence that you, that you, you destroy preposterous arguments. But it's not... The thing is, it's not amusing. Because you, you deal with um, Blair, for instance, and I thank goodness, I was going to say, thank God he's gone. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Oops. Um, but there's a, there's a very, very serious point to make, which is he started a process which has not been uh, halted yet by, by Brown, which is funding with taxpayers' money ridiculous schools like the one that Reg Vardy has um, contributed to that are teaching creationism to young, vulnerable people as if it were a valid scientific fact. Yes, that's Peter Vardy, Reg, Reg Vardy. Oh, sorry, Peter Vardy, yes, Peter Vardy. It's the, the, um, the, the, salesman, the car salesman people. Yes. Just said with contempt, people. Um, I've, got a, I've got a quote in the, in the book, right. apropos Peter Vardy, which goes something, I think it's from Mark Twain, it's something like, behind every evangelist, you'll find the wreck of a car salesman. <laughs> <laughs> um, th this business of the, of the academies that, uh, that, that Tony Blair so loves, um, the, the scheme is something like this, that a rich person contributes something like two million pounds. In Peter Vardy's case, it was two million pounds, which, which draws down 20 million pounds of government money. So the benefactor only has to give 10% of the sort of st startup costs. And then the government gives the, the remaining 90%. And um, plus running costs and everything else, and the, be the benefactor, the very mean benefactor in a sense, it's not a very big benefaction, um, then has bought the right to, um, to control, in effect, the school's whole ethos and policy, including in Peter Vardy's case, to completely staff it with young earth creationists who think the world is 6,000 years old. Um, and by the way, the parallel I put in the hardback edition of The God Delusion is wrong. I said that to believe that the world is only 6,000 years old is equivalent to believing that the distance from New York to San Francisco is, I think I said, uh, about 800 yards. That's wrong. <laughs> it's equivalent to believing that the width of North America from New York to San Francisco is 7.8 yards. That's the, that's the scale, that's the magnitude of the error. Um, that doesn't mean that they're wrong, although of course they are, um, <laughs> but it's a, it's a good way of dramatizing that the disagreement is not some piddling little disagreement. It's a very, very, very big disagreement indeed. That is what the children of Emmanuel College Gateshead are being taught. 
the, that they're being taught a figure for the age of the world, which is a, an important thing about the world in which you live, is how old it is. Um, they're being taught an error of equivalent magnitude to believing that the width of North America is eight yards. But this touches on another chapter as well that you talk about um, the indoctrination, which is an important word, of children is tantamount <laughs> to child abuse. It's an abuse of their minds, not their bodies. And so what we have here is a government, and I have to say our Scottish executive have not yet thrown out the idea of allowing creationism to be taught alongside yes. science. And I think you should know that. You should know that now here that they haven't said that that would be ridiculous. In, in Scotland. In Scotland, which is absolutely outrageous. And if you feel strongly about it, as I do, petition Mr. Salmond. Um, <laughs> but it is, it is a very serious point because if you teach a child that the speed of light is 186,000 uh, miles per second alongside complete falsehoods, how can that child possibly know which is true? Yes, I agree about that. Um, I, I must say about this, this child abuse business, I, I have been accused because I've used this phrase child abuse of, of you know, wanting to take people's children away from them and put them in government-sponsored, communal, you know, rearing <laughs> hatcheries or, or something. <laughs> hatcheries. Um, um, what, I, what I actually said was that, um, that um, labelling children, mm. young children, labelling young children with the religion of their parents is a form of child abuse. And the, uh, I, I bring this home by saying you wouldn't dream of doing that. You wouldn't say this is a Marxist child, mm. or this is a secular humanist child, <coughs> or this is a, a, a monetarist child. Um, but the one exception we all make, just about all of us, is we, we're perfectly happy to say this is a Catholic child, or this is a Protestant child, or this is a Muslim child. And it is a very, at very least, everybody's got to admit that it's a very odd anomaly. That where religion is concerned, we're quite happy to slap a label on a child. Whereas for anything else, like economic opinion, political opinion, taste in music, or football teams, or anything else, you do not. You say you allow the child to have its own opinion. I did call that child abuse. Um, I didn't call um, all forms of religious education child abuse, and I, and I, nor, nor would I. I would, so I'll take that on. Okay. I think it is, but we'll leave it there. Okay. Um, another, I think, a, a, a real masterstroke of this book as well, you begin by talking about the respect for religion, because a lot of, again, your opponents, your fierce opponents, expect you to be rude and abusive and insulting, or in fact, you're, you're anything but. And I can't, this book has made me laugh out loud about 20 times. It's incredibly funny as well as being respectful and scholarly. Um, and I I love um, the dissection of how society, right across the world, has this ridiculously inflated respect for anything religious that it doesn't share for anything else. It is an odd thing, isn't it, that, that if you uh, have an argument about politics or a play you've just seen or a piece of music or a restaurant, you can use really quite strong language um, saying this is the most terrible restaurant, the worst restaurant I've ever been in or something. And um, you can, that's, that's fine, but the moment you say anything actually quite mild about religion, then you're immediately accused of, some, of breaking some kind of taboo. You have to respect somebody's religion. You don't have to respect their politics, or as I said before, their taste in music, or their taste in football teams, or anything else, but you do have to respect their, their religion. How this has come about, I don't know. Um, I suppose people tend to identify with their religion to the same extent as they do with their personal appearance. And so to say something mildly disrespectful about their religion is equivalent to saying, you've got a slightly ugly face. <laughs> 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 but, 
But why should it be? And, 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 and isn't it about time we change that and uh, stop treating religion with automatic respect? Let us by all means respect opinions which are well argued and well justified, but don't just respect an opinion because it's religious. Do you, do you think that there's um, a deliberate um, culture of making that happen, uh, protectionism really, that a lot of religions uh, do it deliberately? I, I'm, I'm very interested in this question of, delib of deliberateness versus, because I'm an evolutionist, <coughs> a Darwinian, and because I, um, I'm so used to thinking of apparent good design arising in the natural world through uh, natural selection of random variation, it is possible that the, the, uh, that the good design of a religion, there's no question they're well designed for, for passing on and, and keeping them, themselves rich and keeping themselves um, well spread about. There's all sorts of good adaptations in any religion uh, w worthy of the name. But as to whether those good adaptations have been deliberately designed into them mm. by Machiavellian bishops and, and mullahs and people, or whether they've gradually evolved by a kind of natural selection process, I would be fascinated to know. I mean, it would be a, a, a magnificent study to see, to, to make a list of all the, what a biologist would recognize as good adaptations for propagating themselves of re religions, and then ask, to what extent were these deliberately designed by a, by a group of clever priests around a table saying, well, why don't we try so-and-so? That'll probably play well. Um, <clears throat> or to what extent has it just evolved by random change and that which works, that which survives, does survive. And this question of respect would be an excellent one mm. to, to, to study. Has the immunity of religion to disrespect come about by a kind of natural selection process or has it somehow been designed into it? But well, you, you talk very interestingly about, in fact, there was a bit of design around the scriptures being rewritten, and there's a great chapter about exactly how the Bible was rewritten to, to, to highlight particular points. So there was definitely some Machiavellian editing and making up going on in order to, to fulfil people's well, wishes. Well, even that might not be Machiavellian. <coughs> it, might, it might be, for example, um, the, those many passages in the New Testament which are clearly written in order to fulfil Old Testament pro pro prophecies. I mean, you could think of that as Machiavellian. On the other hand, you could think of it as being an absolutely sincere um, belief. Well, of course, we know Jesus is the Son of God, and we know that uh, the Son of God was prophesied by Isaiah and Micah, etc. Um, therefore, the, the, he, what, he, what Jesus did must be fulfilling these prophecies, and if the Scriptures fail to show that, it's our, it's our simple duty to, to change them in such a way. It's almost like correcting misprints. I mean, it's... It's, um, this clearly must be a mistake. I mean, if, if, the, if the prophecies say that Jesus, sorry, if prophecies say that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem and the, all the evidence suggests that he was born in Nazareth, well, there must be some mistake. Um, so we've obviously got to change the scripture so that he was born in Bethlehem. And, and you could say that that's an, that's an innocent, by the standards of the time, that's an, that's an innocent piece of self-delusion rather than uh, something... Um, genuinely devious.
Well, of course, the, the science of believing is now under scrutiny um, with, I think, is it called biological psychology, which is a, a science in its infancy. But they are studying the mind of people who are religious to see if there's any... Well, e difference. evolutionary psychology. Yes, evolutionary yes. psychology, yes. Yes, and, and fascinating subject it is. And, and I'm, you know, I'd love to see a lot more research done mm. on the evolutionary psychology of, of religion, yes. Um, again, another very important chapter is about the hostility of religion and the danger that it's that it's uh, uh, we're facing in certainly in the face of the two huge Abrahamic religions evangelicus uh, evangelical Christians in America and the rise of fundamentalist Islam and um, this is the one that you've been really mostly attacked on by saying actually religion is not the root of all evil it isn't really the the problem um, it's other things and um, I wonder if you could talk about that because I know it's it's quite important to you yes I I mean I I do, I do regret the title Root of All Evil, which, mm. which was wished on me by Channel 4 in a television program that I did mm. last year. Um, I, I didn't want to call that, that program the Root of All Evil because I don't think religion is the root of all evil. Um, I think it's the root of quite a lot of evil. Mm. Um, and not a very catchy title. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, one way or another, I've, I've been saddled with this... With this title, Root of All Evil, and a lot of people accuse me of thinking that religion is the root of all evil. Um, but um, I, I think a, a good case can be made that, that, that it's a, a root of a lot of evil. Now that's very different from saying that all religious people are evil. Of course they're not. And a hell of a lot of religious people are very good people. Um, that isn't the point. We're not trying to make lists of good people and bad people and say were they religious or were they not religious. The question is, is there something about being religious that, um, that all other things being equal might tend to make you a worse person or a better person? Or might it have absolutely nothing to do with whether you're, you're good or not? I think a case could be made that faith, which means belief in the absence of evidence, perhaps even it's a virtue to believe something if there is no evidence, in spite of evidence, perhaps even against evidence. If people are taught to believe in faith as opposed to evidence, then could that have evil consequences? And I think it probably could. I think that if um, there's a great moderate mass of people, whether they're Christians or Muslims or Jews or whatever they are, who are perfectly nice people and wouldn't hurt a fly, um, nevertheless, if they're all brought up to think that faith is a virtue, then isn't it rather likely that there's going to be a sort of fringe element, a sort of extreme of the distribution, who really take faith seriously and say, right, my faith tells me that my duty is to blow myself up in order to blow up a lot of infidels. Then, in a way, is it any surprise, should we be surprised that there are extremists who are prepared to do that? if the great majority of nice people have been brought up to believe that it's okay to base your view of the world on faith rather than on evidence and reason and argument. So I think that's the kind of thing I'm talking about when I say there could be general reasons why faith could be a bad thing. And that's nothing to do with counting up the total number of bad people who are religious people. The, the vast majority of religious people are probably not bad people, but that's not the point. Um, 
we are coming to a real crisis point globally over this. And I can't remember the name of the philosopher, but it was a, it was a philosopher historian who said that societies always go from dark ages to enlightenment to plenty to apathy and then dark ages again, almost in a 250-year cycle, which would mean that we're way into apathy and you know, facing the dark ages if he's, if he's right. Um, and just something, I think he might be. And I'm actually genuinely very frightened because yeah. I thought we'd won this battle in 1760. Yeah. And yet it seems that educated, I mean, there are educated people who believe preposterous things and whose views um, are actually affecting and shaping the politics and the culture of the world. Um, and actually, Richard, I don't know what to do about it. What would you suggest? Well, I, 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 don't, I mean, you know, I, I've written that book and that, that's one of the things I'm mm. trying to do. I, I've got... Um, trying to start up a couple of charitable foundations, um, one in America and, and one in Britain. Um, we're running various sort of campaigns. There's one called the Out Campaign. Um, oh, yes, I'm you? wearing the T-shirt. Oh, I can yeah. I alert yeah. you to this. Um, <laughs> this can be purchased on Richard's website, and it's very nice. I got it from America, and it came very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> the, me the meaning of the, of the, of the Out <laughs> Campaign is it's, it's partly... It's partly come out, as in come out of the closet, but it's also speak out, don't be shy, S speak your own opinion, um, reach out, reach out to, to uh, other people. Um, and there's a whole list of other things which are, which are um, um, something out, this, that, that out, the other out. Um, and um, we're hoping that that kind of effort will, will um, influence things a bit. I'm quite hopeful of the internet as being a completely brand new um, method of communication, which uh, in a, maybe that's going to change all the rules. And maybe the, your philosopher who's foreseeing a descent into the Dark Ages might change his mind if he knew about this completely new way in which people can be reached. It, it can work both ways, know, though, Richard, yes. because there's an enormous amount of hate on the internet that people really didn't have access to. I mean, the, the, the major... Uh, dangerous religions, I would call them, are using the internet in spectacular ways, um, which I don't think is particularly good. But you see, nothing can, you can't ban it. Banning is appalling. Yes. And again, to go back to your book, there's a marvellous, marvellous chapter, um, which, which just I think is so passionate, where you, where you argue correctly that all religious scriptures should be studied because yes. they're important works. And so, so the fundamentalists who want to ban you, ban people like us from talking about it, you're saying the opposite. You want to really have us immersed in what they're talking about so we know about it, we can study it, and we can talk about it. And that seems to me to be the way forward. I think there are two reasons for studying it. I mean, one, one is that, the, that the, the scriptures in the King James Version, the, 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 the King James Bible, um, is beautiful English. I mean, it's, it's, it's parts of it are real poetry. The Book of Ecclesiastes, the, uh, the Song of Songs, these are truly beautiful language. Moreover, you can't really appreciate English literature without being s familiar with the Bible because there's so much allusion. There are so many quotations and fragments of quotations which come straight from the Bible. So that's one reason why it's very important to learn about the Bible. The other thing it's important is to learn about is comparative religion, yeah. uh, because so many. This comes back to the point about child abuse and and, and labelling children with one one religion. A child is being abused if the child is told you are a Catholic or you are a Protestant. <coughs> um, but it's perfectly okay, it seems to me, to teach children 
that the world is full of a thing called religion, and there are lots of religions, and there are Catholics, and there are Protestants, and there are Jews, and there are Muslims, and there are Hindus, and they believe this, that, and the other. That's part of education about humanity. It's, it, you could think of it as anthropology, you could think of it as sociology, psychology. That, that's very important, and of course, if children are taught that, then they'll realize that there's nothing special about the particular religion which their parents happen to to hold, and they'll, they'll realize that if they want to, to embrace a religion, it's up to them which religion they embrace. Um, I heard a horror story the other day about a boy, I think he was in Texas, somebody wrote to me about it, who he didn't want to be confirmed. So there was tremendous argument about why, why he didn't want to be confirmed, and finally the priest said, well, all right, you don't have to be confirmed, but only if you write an essay explaining why you don't want to be confirmed. Well, on the face of it, that sounds all right. I mean, that sounds as though, you know, he's being asked to justify his opinion. But he was not asked to write an essay explaining why he didn't want to be a Muslim, or a Jew, or a Hindu, or a Buddhist. And yet, the, the presumption was that because his parents were, as it happened, Catholic, could have been any religion, because his parents were Catholic, somehow not being confirmed into your parents' religion is the thing that requires special measures, and in this case, writing a special essay, justifying it. Yes, because you outline a horrific, a very famous case about the Jewish boy uh, who was baptized by a male. Not Jewish boy. Of course, thank you. Sorry, a boy from Jewish parents. Yes. Thank right. you. Yeah. Well, no, actually, I have to stop you. Not with Jewish, I'm afraid, because being Jewish is a race. So that's, that's oh, an unfortunate right. okay. one. So actually, you can be Jewish okay. and be okay. not religious. But, but that case is very interesting. Yeah, it's a, this, this is a, it's a 19th century uh, s story, so it's not a horror story about today, not, not so surprising. Mm. This was a boy called Edgardo Mortara, uh, who at the age of um, six, suddenly there was sort of hammering on the door, and the Inquisition police, this was in Italy, came in and seized the boy and dragged him off. And uh, he was taken away to a Christian um, uh, establishment and, and brought up as a Christian. His parents were devout Jews. And the reason was that at an earlier stage in his life, when he was a baby, um, he'd been looked after by a young, illiterate Catholic girl, Italian girl. Um, and he'd fallen very ill, and she was terrified he would die, and she wanted to baptize him. So she seized some water and, and threw it on him, a bucket of water, threw, it, threw a bucket of water on him, and says, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, I baptize thee, whatever it is they say. Uh, and that was, that was that, and she forgot all, all about it. But then later, word of this got to the Inquisition, much years later. They said, right, this child's been baptized. It's no longer a Jew. It's a Catholic. And we can't have uh, a Catholic child, this poor Catholic child, being brought up in a Jewish household. I mean, they thought it was child abuse. And they went and seized this child, and took it away from its parents, took Edgardo away from his parents, and, um, I mean, he hardly saw his parents again. Um, well, as I say, that's a 19th century story. It wouldn't happen today. But I think it's a fascinating insight into the religious mind that thinks that this fatuous act of tipping a bucket of water over a child, at a stroke, tipping a bucket of water over a child and mumbling a few words, can completely ruin a child's life, taking 
this unfortunate child away from his parents and putting him into what amounts to an orphanage. Well, you say it doesn't happen today, Richard, but it does, because in adoption agencies, for instance, I know of one operating in London that's trying to put Muslim babies with Muslim families, which is, which is okay. as ridiculous. It's yes. not a Muslim baby. Yes. Anyway, um, the other really, really important um, point about this book um, is that you have gone through every single argument, including, and I think it's a very important one, I, I noticed to you because we discussed this the last time you were at the festival, over how you deal with people saying religion is my consolation. And I'm so oh, yeah. glad that you dealt with that, and you dealt with it beautifully, because um, would you mind just explaining that? Well, it, it's an undeniable fact that uh, religion does console some people. Uh, it doesn't console everybody. I mean, there, there are other people it doesn't console. For example, in the case of the fear of death, there are some people who fear death and would like uh, to survive death and live for eternity. And there are other people who would be absolutely horrified at the idea of living for eternity, um, especially if they've been wicked and think they're going to spend eternity in, in, in hell. Um, hell, by the way, is another case where I'd definitely use, a, use the word child abuse. I mean, any, any child who is threatened with eternal punishment for being naughty, um, which is what they are, um, that, that's, that's child abuse. So anyway, back to consolation. Um, it may very well be that people derive consolation from religion, either because they're afraid of dying or because they are bereaved and grieving for lost loved ones or because they feel that um, they're lonely and, and God is someone for them to talk to. There are all sorts of ways in which religion can indeed be a consolation. But what so many people don't realize is that just because something is consoling, it doesn't make it true. And there are people who seem seriously to be un incapable of telling the difference between something being consoling and something being true. Um, well, I'm not supposed to, I'm not allowed to say you're just thick. Um, so, so I've got to be all sympathetic and everything. Um, <laughs> this isn't going the way I'd planned it. As much. <laughs> um, so yes, um, it, it, ca it can be consoling, but for goodness sake, don't let's confuse that which is consoling with, with that which is true. Because talking about stupidity, or I prefer to say lack of education, um, just sort of stepping back a couple of days, I, I had a, a taxi driver take me to the airport the other day in London, who was a Muslim, and I argued with everybody all the time as we started to argue about it. And he was devout and, his, and, and so on. And, um, and then it transpired he'd never read the Quran, and I had. And he got very annoyed at me. He said, Well, did you read that? I said, No, I read the Arthur J. Arbery translation, which was the most correct. He's a famous Persianist, and I've read the Hadiths. And he hadn't read those either. And he was absolutely firm in his belief, not having read his holy book or indeed the, the, the story of his, or his prophets. Do you say he was annoyed that you'd read the He Quran? was so irritated at Why? me. Why? He said, what, what business have you reading it? <laughs> I said, Well, I was interested. And, um, and I, don't, I said, I don't think he's uncommon. Because I, th I think there's a lot of Christians who also haven't read the Bible and yet adhere to it and so in some kind of airy-fairy principle. So to me, I think the education about Holy Scriptures is, is absolutely essential. Yes. Not, not uh, in science, but absolutely yes, essential. Yes. If anybody here is tempted to be, a, to be Christian, all mm. I can say is read your Bible. Mm. <laughs> because you have an interesting view of the Old Testament God, mm -hmm. don't you? I think your description of him is... Um. <laughs> The most, the most unpleasant character in all fiction. <laughs> then you call him psychopathic. <laughs>
We see uh, Christians, sensible Christians, as you call them, would argue that the wrongs done by the Old Testament are undone in the gentle Jesus yes. making mild in the New Testament. Yeah. But you don't hold anyone well, with that either. Um, <clears throat> I mean, uh, certainly the, the, the New Testament is, is a lot nicer than major <laughs> parts of the, of the Old. Um, I mean, there are various things to say about this. One, one is that, that, that somebody who, who says that they get their, their morals or their niceness from the Bible has to pick and choose which bits of the Bible. And the way we pick and choose is, of course, um, open to question. I mean, whatever criterion you use to say, uh, I reject the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus, but I accept the Sermon on the Mount, um, then you, you are basing that choice on some kind of uh, decent liberal judgment, which is something we can all share. Anybody living at the beginning of the 21st century uh, will have certain views about slavery, about the rights of women, about the rights of children, about um, um, general what we would call humaneness. And we can project that back onto earlier scriptures and recognize that in earlier scriptures there are certain bits, like the Sermon on the Mount, that chime in with our modern liberal, decent consensus. And there are other bits that don't. And of course, we can easily, therefore, choose the bits that we like and the bits that we don't. And we find that there are rather more bits that we like in the New Testament than in the Old. But it's complete nonsense to say, so we're getting them from the, from the New Testament. All we're doing is reading back our modern liberal, liberal consensus into the Bible and saying we can recognize little bits that, that fit and other bits that don't. Um, I'm going to let the audience have a go to ask Can we put the house lights up so we can see everybody? Thanks. Um, so if you wouldn't mind raising your hand, and there will be somebody with a mic will come to you. Please don't start speaking until it comes to you. Um, I was going to do this thing. I, I said to Richard, ask those of you to raise your hands in the audience who believed in the God. And I've decided not to because I actually don't want to know. <laughs> I so don't want to know. I just want that to be your private thing. So um, could we first have um, the, the gentleman right at the top here, please? Thanks. We could start with you. Just wait till the microphone comes. <laughs> Um, Richard, thank you very much for what's a very good and helpful book. Although I do think that um, Muriel's statement that it closes the debate is preposterous. Glad to be of service. Uh, <laughs> it does strike me in reading the book that um, in academic life, that in making a critique of any area of life, you would deal with the best exponents of that particular view. And I don't get the sense from the book of you engaging with serious theologians. And my question to you is, what, in preparing to write the book, which um, modern theologians did you study? I'd like to begin by reading from <laughs> the preface to the paperback. Um, this is by P.Z. Myers. Uh, who has a website called Feringula, and this is the courtier's reply. Uh, and it's about the accusation that I have neglected serious theologians. I have considered the impudent accusations of Mr. Dawkins with exasperation at his lack of serious scholarship. He has apparently not read the detailed discourses of Count Rodrigo of Seville on the exquisite and exotic leathers of the emperor's boots. Nor does he give a moment's consideration to Bellini's masterwork on the luminescence of the emperor's feathered hat. <laughs> we have entire schools dedicated to writing learned treatises on the beauty of the emperor's raiment, 
and every major newspaper runs a section dedicated to imperial fashion. Dawkins arrogantly ignores all these deep philosophical ponderings to crudely accuse the emperor of nudity. <laughs> until Dawkins has trained in the shops of Paris and Milan, until he has learned to tell the difference between a ruffled flounce and a puffy pantaloon, we should all pretend he has not spoken out against the emperor's taste. His training in biology may give him the ability to recognize dangling genitalia when he sees it, <laughs> but it has not taught him the proper appreciation of imaginary fabrics. Mm. Now, <laughs> if, <laughs> any theologian who assumes the existence of a divine creator and goes on from there may be of great interest to other theologians, but is not relevant to my book, since my book is concerned to demonstrate or to argue that there is no such thing as a god. I need concern myself only with those theologians who actually purport to demonstrate evidence for the existence of a divine, of, of a divine creator. Now, if there are theologians who have produced an argument which you think I should take seriously, not about any aspect of theology except the existence of a god, then I'd be very happy to uh, give it due attention. I thought I had covered all the arguments that I could mm. discover which specifically talk about the evidence for the existence of a god. Okay, I thought I had warned you. There's <laughs> 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 a lady down here, please, in the front row. <clears throat> Mr. Dawkins, have you had any feedback from um, your, your readership um, who have uh, turned away from, I don't know, the moonshine of, of a particular religion and um, adopted the um, scientific, uh, rigorous, rigorous um, point of view. Have, have you um, made any converts well, that you're aware um, of? Not, not, not as many as I would like. It's, it's, it, there, there is on my website, richarddawkins.net, mm. down the left-hand side, there's a place called Converts Corner. Um, <laughs> and um, there, are, there are quite a lot, but, but I have to say that the, that the letters that I'm getting are rather more um, saying, uh, actually, you didn't convert me because I already um, agreed with you, but I never dared say so before. Um, and what you've done is convert me into speaking out. But, there, but the co convert's corner is worth looking at if you, if you mm. want. Um, yes, the, the lady here yeah. on the middle row, just to the left, thanks. Uh, Mr. Dawkins, I wondered if there was, an, if you know of, an equivalent writer or thinker um, coming from the Islamic tradition, um, doing the same job for them as you've been doing? Yes. Um, Ibn Warak. IBN Warak, W-A-R-R-A-Q, Ibn Warak. Um, his book is called Why I Am Not a Muslim, which you can hear is a kind of echo of Bertrand Russell's famous Why I'm Not a Christian. Um, it's an excellent book, published about um, 10 years ago, I suppose. Strongly recommended. He's an immensely knowledgeable scholar of Islam and um, a passionate opponent of it. Before you, um, you disappear from me, um, the reason that I'm asking is that um, this isn't going to do any good unless eventually we can stop all the religions fighting each other. Yes. And so that's why I was asking uh, the question. Uh, yes, quite, quite right. And I should have mentioned a much more recent book, um, Ayan Hersey Ali, mm. uh, her book Infidel, 
a, a most moving and courageous account of her Somali childhood, um, her career as her move to the Netherlands where she became a Dutch member of parliament, um, her renouncing of Islam, um, her collaboration with the Dutch filmmaker Theo van Gogh, who was, uh, who was hideously assassinated um, for his work with her. Uh, she's now left, United, left um, the Netherlands, um, I think more or less expelled from the Netherlands, um, and she's now living in the United States. Ayan Hersi Ali, the book is called Infidel. So Infidel by her and um, Why I'm Not a Muslim by Ibn Warak, both strongly recommended. Thank you. Um, yes, the gentleman in the T-shirt here. So keep your hand up so they can come to you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, I'm a convert, by the way. Um, I was converted from being religious to being agnostic by John Wyndham's The Chrysalids, and then from agnostic to atheist by The Blind Watchmaker. Oh, great. Oh, you know that. Thank you. Anyway. <laughs> a great book, um, especially the stuff about children. Um, I think I read that a few years ago and was inspired by it. You can't call them a Muslim child, Christian child, etc. But just a couple of... Um, difficult questions, hopefully. One is that the killer argument for God to me is that matter can't reproduce, um, it can transmute into energy and back, but there's always a set amount. So how could something come out of nothing? Um, I know you're going to say about complexity, but actually the cosmological argument rather than the teleological okay. argument is always okay. much more um, convincing to me. The other one is people like Hirsi Ali, Christopher Hitchens, I think Ibn Warak too, um, are basically neocon supporters. And do you not see that a lot of this stuff about religion is actually also about politics and economics, and that these people are on the wrong side in terms of that? Right. Um, the first part <coughs> was... Um, a bit matter, not, uh, nothing yes, the, nothing. Yes, the, the <coughs> cosmological <coughs> argument. Um, so I'll, I'll stay away from complexity, and that, that's fine, <laughs> I, I, with some <laughs> relief, I, I think. Um, I agree that to understand how you could get something out of nothing is extremely hard, but it is actually at least equally hard to think how you could get God out of nothing. And therefore, I don't see that it solves the problem at all. I agree we have a problem. It's a problem that uh, physicists are wrestling with. I don't think it's um, unlikely that physicists will eventually come up with a satisfactory explanation. An explanation which I, as an individual, very likely won't understand, um, which, but that's not a, an objection. There are lots of things that I don't understand. Um, and I have enough um, respect, which is the right use of the term, for the physics community, the fact that they police each other, the fact that they um, uh, um, re referee each other's work and so on, to know that, um, or to have some confidence in, if a, if physicist, if a consensus of physicists comes up with a, a, good a good theory, what they say is a good theory, even if I can't understand the mathematics, that, um, that that's, it weighs with me to put it at its, at its, at its mildest. But, the, but the, the, the main point is that the, the, the baffled incomprehension that you and I share about how you can get something from nothing is inflated when one looks at how you could get God from nothing. Um, the gentleman down here. Oh, I didn't answer oh, his yes, second part. The neocons. Sorry. I am aware that the politics of Christopher Hitchens with respect to Iraq are poles apart from my own. Um, and I 
just think it's um, nothing to do with the subject at hand. I mean, he, we, di we disagree over politics. Um, his arguments for favoring the, the Iraq war, by the way, are closest to being good arguments, closer to being good arguments than any others I've ever read. I still don't, I'm not persuaded by them, but um, they are serious arguments. Um, and uh, I just agree to, to differ with him over, over religion as I might differ with him over some, something else on, sorry, over, over politics. I might differ with him over, over other things, but I agree with him over religion. Well, I, I think actually, we're going to move on. I think okay. Richard sort of answered yeah. that. It's yeah. the same thing. They disagree in politics, yeah. Yeah. but they agree about yeah. religion. Thanks, anyway. Sir. Bernard <clears throat> um, Crick, but no relation of Francis, mm -hmm. as far as we both know. I think we're both vice presidents of the British humanists, but I don't entirely share Muriel's total enthusiasm for your line of argument, because while I share your philosophical attack on any possible proofs of the existence of God, while I share perhaps it's an evolutionary argument to thought that the world would be happier if there was less religion and superstition and more reason and science, that's a pretty long-term argument and we're faced with two very big problems at the moment deadly religious fundamentalism. And I've argued amongst the British humanists that the only effective opponents of fundamentalist Islam are found among moderate Islamicists, and the most effective opponents are not people like yourself or ourselves. Indeed, possibly your arguments make it worse because it makes it more difficult for humanists and skeptics to work with moderate Christians against extremists. So I think in the now rather than in the future, I think there is a political problem that has not been raised so yes. far. I, I have to take that seriously. I think that's an excellent point. Um, and it, it's one that gives me a lot of, uh, uh, that, that I think about a great deal. I genuinely don't know what the best uh, political line should, should be. I meet this, it, this again, it's a very similar point to the one you make over creationism in, and, and, and evolution in American schools. Um, I, I am not totally popular with the science lobby in the United States which is fighting against creationism in the schools because for somebody to stand up as I do and say one of the things that's led me to atheism is evolution is, is meat and drink to the creationists. That's exactly what they want to hear. Because in the, in the climate of American politics, at least local American politics, um, to be able to say, you see, evolution leads to atheism, to many people in America, that means, right, we've got to scrap evolution from our, from our schools. And that's another aspect of the point that, that Bernard Crick has just, just made. Um, so yes, and, and it's a very serious point that the best opponents of extremist Christians and extremist Muslims might be moderates in both cases. I think uh, the, the best I can do is to say that, that while I'm glad that there are moderates and very, very decent people like Bishop Richard Harris of Oxford and, and um, uh, Bishop Richard Holloway of Edinburgh, um, who are um, moderate Christians passionately fighting against ex extremists and no doubt the similar, similar Muslims, I'm delighted that they're doing that and I join forces with them um, from time to time. Um, I think it may be helpful also to have people like me and Christopher Hitchens dissing religion altogether um, because 
there may be a lot of people who are, um, maybe it, it, they hadn't really thought about it very much, and it hadn't occurred to them that actually there isn't actually very good reason to be religious at all in the first place. A lot of people sort of assume that, oh, well, you've got to be religious, haven't you? Because, I mean, you know, how else do you explain the world? I mean, but, but never really given it very much thought. And so if there are people like me who, who, are, who are able to say, no, that's a bad argument, think it through, and then they say, yes, yeah, it's a bad argument, isn't it? That's quite right. Um, I, I think that, that it's a sort of two-pronged attack, and if, and if people like, like me and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens are saying that, um, while uh, people like the, the, the decent moderates that you're talking about are approaching from the other direction, we, we might achieve a, a good result. Thank you. I'm afraid we really don't really have time for another question. So I'm just going to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, um, this is possibly one of the most important books of the 21st century. I don't say that lightly. Um, and it should be in every hotel drawer alongside... <laughs> <you know. laughs> and of course, you have your opportunity to purchase one outside of the tent where, where uh, Richard will be. And I think, please join me in thanking him profusely, not just for appearing today, but for writing this book and being alive. Professor Dalton. Thank you. Thank you. That was fantastic.